Tonight, uh, if you have your Bible, I want you to open it. Open it to 1 John chapter 1, because that's where we'll be looking in just a little bit. But there is good news. And that good news, well, that's the best news. Jesus saves. I don't know of any news any better, because we're all sinners, we're all lost, we all need a Savior, and, and Jesus saves. There are some times when we, we miss the important thing. When we hear good news, man, don't we have to tell it? How many of you did not get, if, if your children had children, how many of you did not get on the phone and say, hey, guess what? And, and when you're having your own children, if it's two o'clock in the morning, what do you do? You start calling people who are close to you. It doesn't matter. You know you're going to wake them up. But this is important. This is good news. Hey, guess what happened to us? We share good news. We can't keep it to ourselves. That's just the nature of good news. And, uh, you know, on one occasion in Jeremiah chapter 20, if you have, keep your place in 1 John, but if you want to turn back to Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah was asked by God to do a mission to preach. And uh, he does. And he says, look at Jeremiah chapter 20 and begin reading with me in verse 7. O Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You're stronger than I, and I have, and have prevailed. But I'm in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, I'll not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. You see, he's been doing what God asked him to do. He's been preaching. But he soon learned that preaching isn't always received well. He said, on a daily basis, people mock me. They hold me up to derision. They ridicule me. I'm tired of it. I quit. And, and he said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire. Shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. He couldn't stay quiet. It's too good. The news, the message is too important. He said, I, I, when I shut up, I, I couldn't live with myself. It was welling up inside of me. I had to tell. And so he got back to doing what God had called him to do. There is good news that we all have. We know it. If you're a Christian, you know it. You have news that you cannot keep to yourself. And if you've been trying to keep it to yourself, I hope it wells up inside of you and won't let you sleep at night. I hope it bothers your conscience and won't let you get a good night's rest because you're keeping good news to yourself. We, we've got to share this news. It's that good. Jesus saves. Sometimes we miss the thrust and the, the, the importance of good news as well. Um, in 1903, December the 17th, 1903, that's when the Wright brothers flew for the first time. And uh, I looked up, because I'd always heard this story, and I thought, is that true, or is that just one of these stories that gets perpetuated myth? But I looked it up, and they still have the, the actual um, telegraph that the Wright brothers sent home 
when this happened. They were at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and they flew four times on December the 17th, the longest time I think they went for 57 seconds uh, in that flight. They traveled over 800 feet, and it was a successful day. And so they telegraphed home, and here's exactly what their telegraph said. Success, four flights, Thursday morning, all against 21-mile wind from level with engine power alone. Average speed through air, 31 miles. Longest, 57 seconds. Inform press, home by Christmas. That's what the Wright brothers wrote in a telegraph to their father. He said, we've flown four times on this day. The longest was 57 seconds long. Inform the press, and we'll be home for Christmas. The father informed the press, and here's the headline from the Dayton Journal Herald the very next day. The Wright boys are coming home to spend Christmas with their parents. They missed the story. They wrote about them coming home for Christmas. They missed that they had flown. They, they missed to scoop one of the most historic events of, of, our, of, the, of the century. And they missed it because they, they were focusing on the wrong thing. And I wonder sometimes, when we get in discussions with people, do we ever miss the main thing do we get so caught up in, in peripheral issues that, and we talk about and we debate and we, we, you know, bat things around with each other and we miss Jesus saves? That's the main thing. And that needs to be at the forefront. And so tonight, what I want us to do is talk about that good news. And I want to share four things with you about how Jesus saves. And the first one is this. Jesus saves by the cleansing blood of Christ, and that blood, that cleansing, is conditional. It's not automatic. Jesus doesn't save everyone. Titus tells us that the um, grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation. But though it has appeared to all men, not all men will be saved. Jesus himself spoke more of hell and eternal punishment than any, any other... Uh, New Testament writer, he talked about this place that not everybody's going to be saved. But if you look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, do you remember what he said? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Christ cleanses us of our sin. There's that little word if, if we walk in the light. Our salvation is conditional. It's not automatically given. it's dependent on whether we walk in the light or not. And I will say this again, and and we need to emphasize this, walking in the light is about habits. It's about a a lifestyle. It's about a course of action, a, 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 a path that has been charted out for you. It's not about perfection. Walking in the light doesn't mean as long as we're perfect and not sinning, We have the blood of Christ. No, it's about a way of life, a choice of whom to follow and how to live and and who to follow, follow being Jesus Christ, of course. 
but it's conditional. That salvation that Jesus offers all of us sinners is conditioned if we walk in the light. Here's the second thing that I learned from 1 John 1 verse 7. Not only is that cleansing conditional, but it's also continuing. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That, that's present tense. He doesn't, it's not just a one-time act. It's a continual thing. He continues to cleanse us of our sins. And again, it's, it's not that, man, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to sin. When we give our lives to Jesus, how long does it take from the baptistry to our first sin? Not very long sometimes. Uh, we, we make mistakes through weakness and ignorance and, and sometimes rebellion. But when I make a mistake, I don't have to think, oh no, I'm out of the light. Uh, Jesus has forsaken me. Um, it, it has again to do with our course, our path, our way of life. The cleansing is a continual Cleansing As we walk in the light, as I pursue walking in the footsteps of Jesus to the best of my ability, when I do come up short and when my footprints don't exactly hit in his, I have the promise that there is a cleansing that is taking place. That, and it gives me confidence. It allows me to pillow my head at night and know that Jesus understands my weaknesses and, and has made uh, provision for those weaknesses. The cleansing blood of Christ is continuing. Here's the third thing it is. The cleansing blood of Christ is also complete. I want you to notice, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from some sin? No, from all sin. Have you ever worried yourself at night sometime when you're laying in bed just thinking about yourself and your relationship to God and your own human frailty and weaknesses and then you get to thinking, what if I haven't asked God to forgive me of all my sins? I know that this passage says we need to confess our faults one to another and if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us, verse 9, but what if, what if I forgot? What if I sinned and I don't even know that I sinned? What about that? What, is God going to cover those sins because I haven't confessed them because I didn't even know I did it or I didn't even know if I did it that it was a sin? And so we sit there and maybe we lose confidence in our salvation. We wonder, well, I don't know. Where do I stand? Turn in your Bible, and this is a passage you might want to mark, but turn in your Bible to Psalm 19. God makes provision for our weaknesses. If the sacrifice of Jesus were only for those who could enumerate every single sin they've ever committed in their whole life and they have perfect memory of it and perfect recognition of it, if that's who Jesus can only save, that's not good news to any of us. Because I can't remember all my sins, nor can you. And I don't even know all the times that I have sinned, and nor do you. Can God forgive me of sins that maybe are hidden from me? 
but that I have a penitent heart and, and he knows my heart and knows that if I knew that was wrong, I wouldn't do it and I'd ask him to forgive me. Can God do that? Well, look, listen to what Psalm 19 verse 12 says. Who can understand his errors? That's a good question. Who among us knows every sin that we have committed? Who knows all of our errors? I don't think anybody here does. He goes on to say, cleanse me from secret faults. I don't think he's talking about things like David did and trying to hide his sins. I don't think that's what he means by secret faults here. David, or the psalmist, wouldn't be asking God to forgive us of sins that we're unwilling to confess and we're trying to hide. He's not asking that. David himself had to acknowledge his sin and those things that were secret to others. He had to come clean if he wanted those sins forgiven. So what kind of sin is he talking about in this passage? He's asking God, I can't even tell you all of my sins. I don't have an understanding of all of my sins. And I pray, Lord, that you will forgive my secret faults. Forgive me of those things that I don't even know that I'm doing and they're wrong and I haven't learned that yet. Will you forgive me of those? And he goes on and says in verse 13, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Do you ever sin and you know it's wrong? Do you ever just rebel against God? And do something you know. You know it's wrong. It's not that it snuck up on you or you didn't know or weren't aware that it was a sin. You knew it was and you did it anyway. Have we ever been there? He says, forgive me of my secret sins. Forgive me of my presumptuous sins. And may they never have dominion over me. May they never rule my life. I want my life to be ruled by you. And along the way, I'm going to make mistakes. Sometimes I'm going to walk right into them. Sometimes I'm not even going to see them coming. And when I do, forgive me. God has the ability to cover all of our sins. If we have the penitent heart, that desire to walk in the light and follow Jesus, he's made provision for us. Forgiveness is not outside the realm of possibility. It's not outside the capability of us. I don't know that any of us are capable of knowing everything or being able to recall everything that we've ever done that's wrong. I don't think we can do that. And I don't think that salvation, therefore, is out of reach to me. Because God, under the old law and the new is better, He made provision for secret sins then. Do you think the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice would not be better, at least equal to, obviously better than what they had then? The blood of Jesus Christ is complete. It doesn't leave us undone before God. And then here's the last point. It's conditional. It's continuing. It's complete. And it has to be contacted. In Revelation 1 and verse 5, the text says that we have been loosed 
literally, uh, our translations may say washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. How do we get washed in the blood of Christ? We sing songs about the blood of Jesus and being washed by the blood. And I mean, how do we do that? We're not capable of going back to Jerusalem and finding a puddle of blood somewhere and, and somehow why? It, it can't be a physical thing. That, that verbiage has to refer to some kind of a spiritual thing that happens to us. When and how do we wash ourselves in the blood of Jesus to have the forgiveness of sins? Well, look at Romans chapter 6. You have a man who is dead in sin. He's dead to sin, as a matter of fact. And so what do we do with men who are dead? We, we bury them. And this man is buried with Christ in baptism. And he rises to walk in newness of life. Jesus shed his blood in his death on the cross. And they took down his body and they buried it in a tomb. And then he rose from the tomb. And it's in that fashion, it's in that likeness, we reenact the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We die to sin. We are buried with Christ in baptism. And we rise to walk in newness. There's been a conversion, a change that has taken place. I went down a sinner. I came up saved. Now, how, how did that happen? Did the water save me? Did it wash away my sin? No, that's not what happened at all. It was the blood of Christ that saves us, that washes us, that cleanses us. Uh, Revelation 1 and verse 5, Ephesians 1 and verse 7. There's a host of passages that tell us that. But here's the question. When and how do I come in contact with that blood? When does God say, I apply my son's blood to your life? It's when we're baptized. What else are we to make of it? I go down a dead sinner. I come up a living recreated follower of God. That's a conversion. That's a change. And it took place when I submitted to my Lord in baptism. It's, it, it has to be contacted. The fact that Jesus shed his blood doesn't do me any good unless I appropriate it. And God tells us how to appropriate it. And there may be some here tonight who have not yet appropriated the blood of Jesus. Oh, you know he died. You believe he died. And you know you have sin in your life, and you know what that blood of Jesus can do for you. But just sitting there and saying, I know all this, it doesn't get the job done. We have to contact that blood in a spiritual sense. We have to do something that God says, all right, Because you've done this, I will now apply the blood to your life. He does that in baptism. When we are joining our Savior in this reenactment of his death, burial, and resurrection. The Bible even tells us later in Romans chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, that when we have done that and obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, that form of doctrine... We, we have to obey the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the gospel. Well, we don't go get killed and 
nailed to a cross and get buried and rise literally again, but we do reenact that. When we obey that form of doctrine, he said, we're set free from our sins. If you haven't yet obeyed that form of doctrine that Paul talks about in Romans 7, I've got good news for you. Jesus saves. And if you will appropriate his blood and come in contact with it, it will do you good. It'll be a continual cleansing as long as you walk in the light for the rest of your life, as long as you seek his will, it will cover you completely. It'll guard you from secret sin. It'll guard you from presumptuous sins as we confess and as we don't allow those to have dominion in our life. There's good news. Jesus saves. My question to you as we sing this song of encouragement is just simply this. Has he saved you? And if not, take care of that tonight. We invite you to come to the front as we stand together.